Al Jazeera podcast. The essence of this war is that it was a war on children. And in order to be able to kill 7,000 children, you unchild these children so that you can commit these atrocities against them. Professor Ghassan Abusitta is one of the world's leading specialists in plastic and reconstructive surgery. The British Palestinian surgeon is a passionate and active humanitarian and has worked as a war surgeon in numerous war zones, including Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, and Gaza. Since the start of the war on Gaza, he has dedicated his time to treating thousands of civilians caught up in this brutal ongoing aggression. And he joins us today on Center Stage to shed light on what he has witnessed and experienced in Gaza. Dr. Ghassan Abusette, welcome to Center Stage today. When a war starts, the reflex of many around the world is to flee in the opposite direction of the bombing, whereas you have completely the opposite reflex. You leave your perfectly safe home in the UK and go to where the bombing is to operate on the wounded under the shelling. Where does this reflex come from? I think uh, uh, it kind of came on uh, gradually. Uh, first, because of a sense of, you know, as a Palestinian, there is a tradition within, within Palestinian community that goes back to the 50s of medicine being uh, intrinsic to the, the struggle uh, for Palestinian freedom. Uh, and then in the 60s with the Palestine Red Crescent Society, and there's a kind of whole folklore within Palestinian uh, community of these, these health workers who were uh, a, an intrinsic part of the struggle through the first Intifada. And so that was really the beginning. But what had happened, it, it was also mixed with a kind of, as I got more experienced with each war. And then when I was in the, at the American University in Beirut, when I started pursuing the same interest academically, it became a kind of sense that you have something different to contribute. And therefore, there's a sense that if you're not there, then, then there's something that you're denying people access to. Um, and so with each war, I just felt even more obliged to be there. Can you tell us when did you decide to go to Gaza this time? So really by the end of the day in, on Saturday, the 7th of October, I kind of felt that what was about to happen to Gaza was a major assault and that uh, 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 the consequences are going to be dire. In my mind, I still thought it was going to be a, a worse than the war in 2014, but nothing like what I had seen. Saturday night, I reached out to, to um, my contacts at uh, Doctors Without Borders, MSF. And by Sunday morning, I had the ticket. And Sunday night, I was in Cairo. And by Monday morning, the 9th, at 8 o'clock, I was waiting uh, at Rafah uh, checkpoint to, to get through. You've seen a lot in this war. People who follow you uh, have seen daily testimonies, almost daily testimonies. So what, in your opinion, uh, are the main things that the world should not forget about this war? The essence of this war is that it was a war on children. There's uh, 7,000, 7,500 confirmed uh, children that killed. 
there's expected that there's around 2,000 to 2,500 still buried under the rubble. And there is between 17,000 and 20,000 wounded children. As um, Save the Children said, this is more than gets killed across the whole world in a year. Uh, and I think that's the, the biggest crime the world needs to face up to uh, in, in this, uh, you know, this horrendous war is that 45% to 50% of all of those wounded and killed were children. The UNICEF uh, declared that Gaza became a graveyard uh, for children. At the same time, there were officials, world leaders, doubting the numbers coming uh, from Gaza. You had Human Rights Watch saying that they never had any reason to question the, the numbers coming from the Ministry of Health. You, under the shelling with the rest of the medical team, with the civilians uh, getting killed and uh, fleeing and running for their life, trying to survive, how were you receiving all this debate? I think what happens uh, uh, in order to do inhumane things to people, you first need to dehumanize them. And in order to be able to kill 7,000 children, you need to unchild them. You need to create the rhetoric by which their lives don't matter the same way killing 7,000 children in London or Paris or Berlin or uh, 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 anywhere in the States. You unchild these children you, uh, so that you can uh, uh, commit these atrocities against them. And you kind of always, it was in the background, you kind of would, just from the kinds of questions that you were getting from uh, 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 journalists, particularly Western journalists, that, you know, were, were, um, where the starting point was the Israeli propaganda. And your job as a victim was to prove and disprove it continuously, rather than the starting point is what is evidently in front of me. And so your job is not just to accept the death of these children, but to actually show beyond a shadow of the doubt that each child is counted for. And that's what the Ministry of Health did. It published the names, the ID numbers of all of the dead until Shifa collapsed. What was the most hurtful question you received during your pregnancy in Gaza? I had just come out of Ahli Baptist uh, uh, um, massacre. And I had... Uh, received a, a phone call from Western journalist who basically started uh, the question by telling me that what was my comment on the fact that this was a Palestinian missile. And suddenly you're thinking, you know, is it complicity? Is it a kind of racism where by virtue of their whiteness, Israelis uh, and their narrative is never uh, doubted. So even when you see them murdering a whole people, you always assume that they can't possibly lie. They might murder, but they can't lie because they're like us. Or whether it's just propaganda or a political position. But certainly that was for me the kind of first moment I thought at no stage did he bother to ask whether what I thought as someone who, who, who saw the, the massacre unfold. This, this whole massacre that day, it was one of the first massacres where we had this number of people dying. 
And then immediately the world started debating whether it's a Palestinian rocket or not. How do you perceive the timing of those debates? If you were to ask what, is, what was the hospital that was least likely to be attacked, anyone in Gaza, they would tell you it's the Ahli Baptist Hospital. It's run by the World Council of Churches. It's the Anglican Church in the UK. There's a bishop in the UK who is responsible for it. And so there's a sense that it was protected. And I think that's why the Israelis chose it. It was a litmus test for the destruction of the Palestinian health sector, i.e. we will pick this one. And then we will see the, res- the, the, the response of the international community. The inter- response of the international community was so duplicitous that then we w- what witnessed within days the dismantling of four p- children's hospitals. We started with the whole narrative about Shifa being a command and control center. All of the kind of military plan that had centered the, uh, um, the Palestinian health uh, um, system at, as its military objective basically was rolled out once the world failed in that litmus test. Why are they targeting hospitals? To understand the aim of the the aim of the war is is to empty Gaza of its inhabitants. This is a continuation of the Nakba of forty eight. The Israelis have now come to the point where they believe that the solution to their problems is to basically uh, uh, ethnically cleanse Palestinians from Gaza and then eventually from the West Bank and even from the Galilee. And so, in order to do that, you need to create a catastrophe and to create a self-sustaining catastrophe. And so what you do in order to create a self-sustaining catastrophe is you dismantle those parts of life that make life manageable in a place like us. And so you go after the water desalination plants, you dismantle the sewage system, you destroy over 200 schools, you carpet bomb the universities, and you you go after the bakeries and you then destroy the health system while wounding 40,000. And so that once the war is over, there are epidemics, there is infectious diseases, and people sit and watch their wounded loved ones die in front of their eyes so that they voluntarily leave Gaza. And so the war continues after the bullets and the bombs stop in fulfilling its objective, which is to, to empty Gaza of its inhabitants. The American administration uh, declared uh, this week that um, they don't have any evidence of Israel deliberately targeting civilians and that they believe that Israel is doing the best it can to avoid killing civilians. From what you saw, how would you qualify the Israeli attacks on Gaza? So the difference this time between this war and, let's say, the 2014 war is in 2014, the Israelis would target a single building and they would take it out. And sometimes that meant wiping three generations of the same family. This time you'd be looking out the window and and you could see a whole neighborhood light up, turn into a, a cloud of dust and then disappear. And so this time the kind of the targets were not buildings, but whole neighborhoods. And residential buildings were being hit by bombs that were 2,000 pounds over a ton, 500, 700 kilogram. And the aim was to take out everybody in that building. In 45 days, they had killed 
one in 200 people. The statistics, the math of the, the, the probability of, of murder means that it can't possibly be anything but a genocidal war because you've already started to, a, to, to wipe out a percentage, a me- measurable percentage of the population. What was the hardest case uh, you dealt with in the North? They're all difficult, but as a parent, children are always the most difficult to deal with. Um, you know, there was a boy, 13, uh, who had full, full thickness, full facial burns. His hands were burnt, his legs were burnt. Um, and, uh, you know, it operated on him twice, and, but just over 60% of his body was burnt. And, you know, despite trying to kind of uh, save his life, he eventually uh, passed away. And, but, you know, as a 13-year-old and as, as a parent of a 13-year-old, you always think of, of that boy. We heard in this war a lot about um, burns. Um, from your medical experience, what you saw, what was it caused by? So there are two waves. The first, at the beginning of the war, there must have been some kind of incendiary bomb because like this boy, 13-year-old Anas and his mother, we had uh, patients who had over 50% of their body surface area burnt, deep burns with no shrapnel. So these incendiary bombs would just create a fireball. But then... When the Israeli uh, ground invasion started initially in the north and then when they got to a beach camp uh, in, in Gaza City, there was uh, white phosphorus being used. And I'd seen white phosphorus in Gaza during the 2000-2008-2009 war. And it's very distinctive. If you've seen it once, you kind of immediately know what it is. So because it's a chemical and the phosphorus continues to burn as long as it's exposed to oxygen, the chemical, so the, the bomb explodes midair and then it covers a wide area with a canopy of white phosphorus pellets. And so when they land and they touch the, 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 the tissues and the clothes, they will continue to burn and they will burn right through like a drill. They will drill right through until they reach the inner part of the body, whether it's internal organs or bone. And so this boy, the 13-year-old, a 13-year-old boy and his father that I'd first treated, it was down to, to, to bone and his father was down to ribs, uh, the burns. What was the moment when you decided to leave the North to begin with? At five o'clock in the morning, having been operating all night, we ran out of anesthetic. Wow. Um, and the anesthetist told us that that was it. There is nothing else that we can do in terms of putting patients to sleep. And then I realized that, you know, the hospital had turned into just the first aid station and that there, as a surgeon, there was nothing left for me to be able to do. And it was just too painful to just bandage the wounds and stack them up. So I thought I would go to the south and find the hospital and, and try to be useful there. One anesthetist and three of the, the young nursing staff we decided to walk, took us five, six hours just to get to the south. Uh, you have to walk through Salah Din Street where the Israelis had set up a, a kind of almost like a bottleneck where they can watch people as they pass by and arrest whomever they want to arrest. 
And, and it was probably one of the most kind of depressing and, and heart-wrenching experiences because the road was just full of thousands trying to push elderly relatives, trying to push uh, wounded relatives down this road that the tanks had basically plowed up. And there were bodies uh, um, on the side of the road. How did you take the decision of actually leaving Gaza? When I got to Nserat camp in, in the central area, in, which is in the kind of southern part of, of Gaza, the idea would be that I would just join a, a hospital that I had worked with in the past um, in Nserat camp. And the first day I was just in the emergency department and we were just doing dressings. And then the second day I was doing dressings and I was trying to get patients to the operating room and there was just no possibility. I called a couple of friends in some of the other hospitals and, and they were basically unable to take their cases to the operating room because there wasn't enough operating room space. And that's when I kind of thought, well, I mean, the problem is the system has collapsed so much that the lack of surgeons is no longer the problem. The problem is that there's no capacity left in the system. What needs to be done now? The health system collapsed, people are starving, winter is already here. What needs to be done right now? Well, right now there needs to be a ceasefire. There needs to be an opening of the borders so that medical teams, field hospitals, the ability to quickly rehabilitate as many of the hospitals in the north as possible. All of this needs to happen immediately. Now it needs to happen so that these 40,000 wounded do not die of their wounds. And so we don't get the epidemics that have already started. You know, we've got hepatitis A. We've got, we're going to get cholera, we're going to get typhus, we're going to get respiratory diseases as the winter proceeds. Because these schools that are, you know, centers for the internally displaced are so overcrowded. They're so underprepared in terms of toilet facilities, in terms of heating, that, that you know, within a couple of weeks, we're going to start getting outbreaks of infectious diseases. Describe us one of the hardest days you had to work during? There was a day in which I had to do amputations on six children. There was a day in which we'd run out of ketamine, which is an anesthetic, and ended up having to clean the wounds, major wounds of patients all day, including some children, without anesthetic or without morphine because they were getting infected and, and their life was at risk as a result of these infected wounds. There were days when we went back to work right after uh, one of our colleagues had been killed. Um, there were days when uh, I continued working after I'd kind of made my peace with the idea that I'm most likely never going to go home. Um, there were all very difficult days. Uh, and, and, you know, you kind of, you're, after I left, you go about your day to day and then you suddenly remember a detail that you had kind of somehow put uh, to the side so that you can protect yourself. And, and, and it just reminds you of, of the difficulty that these, these days were like. But at the same time, in this darkness, there were brilliant moments of human kindness that light up this darkness. 
you know, this, this kind of death world that the Israelis built in Gaza. Individual people resist with acts of love that have nothing to do with what they're facing. And, and sometimes these acts of love are towards people they've never met in their life. So this boy, a three-year-old boy, who was the sole survivor of his family, um, I had had to do an amputation on his arm and his leg. And um, we, when we sent him back to the wards the following day, what I do is, is I go around seeing my patients. Um, and I was worried that he didn't have anybody with him because none of his family made it to the point where we didn't even know his first name. And he had, when I got to the wards, the, the mother of another child who was in the bed next to him had him on her lap and she was feeding him uh, while she was feeding her own children. And, and suddenly you kind of see that, that kind of act of, of, of uh, uh, human love that has nothing to do with biology or kinship or, uh, uh, or anything just and, you know, love as a cure for all of this death. There is a lot of humanity in those stories and we see a lot of humanity in times like this. But then again, we ask ourselves, we are in 2023. So how did we fail again? I think political expediency in each war that the world has gone through has allowed us to get to the point where what is acceptable depends on the victim and the perpetrator more than the crime itself. And what is worrying for the rest of humanity is that each war starts where the previous war ended. And if this, pre if this war ends at the killing of 8,000 children in 40 to 45 days, then the next war where all we've accepted that all of the norms and that had been agreed on uh, since the Second World War can be blatantly violated, then the next war will be more brutal than this one. And it doesn't need to be in this region. It can be anywhere in the world because the world had accepted that uh, uh, standard um, of behavior. Thank you very much, Dr. Ghassanabs. Thank you. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.